While Cushing inventories weren't full, all the storage space was fully leased out. And so they could not catch a bid. Um, and that's what happened was at some point you priced it so much. You said, I'm willing to mess up my operational storage at minus $40. Someone's willing to take it. And so that was, that was really it. You want to take physical delivery. That's fine. But if you can't move it, oil is worthless. Then you got to pay someone to move it. And so, um, I think you're going to see that in some of your May physical pricing and, and not necessarily possibly Cushing, but I think you're going to see it in the Bakken and in those places where these net back prices to the producer could be close to zero. Oil and gas today is more than exploration and production. It is more than the feet drilled or the hours of continuous pumping. The oil field is a group of people, companies, technologies, and institutions working towards providing the world with safe, affordable energy that is sustainable for the billions of people that depend on the success of the industry. The Oil Field 360 podcast is a 360 degree deep dive into the leaders of the industry who will provide listeners with a first-hand account of what it takes to build, maintain, and lead the energy business into the future. The Oil Field 360 podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler, one of the largest and most experienced energy investment banking firms in the industry, offering M&A advisory, capital markets execution, and investment research. For more information, please visit SimmonsPSC.com. Lockton Global Energy and Marine, uncommonly different. Lockton is the world's largest privately owned insurance broker and risk finance advisor. Lockton's global energy expertise is centered in Houston and represents the largest concentration of energy specialists, clients, and experiential knowledge in the upstream, midstream, and downstream segments of the oil and gas industry. Visit LockedIn.com for more information. Tomahawk Safety, a leading manufacturer of safety gloves ergonomically designed for superior fit, offering best-in-class protection and helping you combat the industry's toughest jobs. Tomahawk is also supporting our frontline healthcare workers by offering isolation gowns, gloves, masks, and other critical medical PPE. For more information, please visit TomahawkSafety.com. Range Valuation Services. Range is the only oil and gas focused valuation and appraisal firm in the financial services industry. Range specializes in appraising and valuing oil field equipment, machinery, inventory, and property, and customarily works directly with clients, lenders, investment bankers, insurers, and private equity and debt sponsors. For more information, please visit rangevaluationservices.com. Welcome to the Oilfield 360 podcast. This is uh, another edition of season two. I am joined by the co-host extraordinaire, David DeRode. How are you, David? Doing well, doing well. This nice is a, afternoon. It is a nice afternoon, yes. The, the spring is coming to an end, though. Can you feel it? Oh, uh, yeah. Yes, we're within probably a week of just regretting going outside yep. for four months. So, But it'll kill off that virus, we hope. Yes, exactly. Well, we've got a, uh, just another spectacular guest today. It's, it's an unbelievable situation that we're in. We're very blessed with the guests we've been getting. But today's guest, Zach Lee. Welcome, Zach. Well, thank you. Good afternoon, guys. Yeah, Thanks for having me. me. It is our pleasure to have you. You're uh, Arm Energy. Correct. And does Arm stand for anything or is it? 
It used to stand for asset risk management. And then as the, the companies evolved, we just ultimately shortened it to ARM. Okay. And uh, have you ever been on a podcast before? Uh, no. Oh, what's this? We like that because when people have never been on one, they don't know for any good or any bad. So, <laughs> or, so this is fantastic. So again, thanks for your time. No problem. During, uh, during this really unprecedented time. How, how are you dealing with this, this time in business and in life? Uh, you know, I'd say let's talk live first. Personal wise, uh, I'm uh, the novelty of COVID stay at the house is officially worn off. You know, we have run out of booze at the Lee household. And so we're not sure how much longer we can stand this. So we're definitely getting a little, little antsy, but family's doing well. Business wise, business has actually been pretty good. We, uh, you know, we're a large trading organization and, and volatility is good for us. And so while I, um, I think it's tough for the oil business, uh, you know, the, the company has, has managed through it pretty well. You know, we, we've got people obviously working out of the house. So that's tough. Do, do me a favor, if you don't mind, just because sure. I want to talk about uh, your career and development and the companies, but just for a baseline to where people that may not know what ARM Energy is, can you give us a just a baseline explanation of what that is? Sure. Um, so ARM is a commodity trading firm uh, that manages, trades, buys, sells oil, gas, liquids, really primarily North America. Uh, but also globally as well. But I would say our presence more North America. We have three distinct lines of business. We have a commodity hedge advisory business. And that was how we initially started working with small to mid-sized oil and gas companies, designing, implementing, and actively managing their hedge portfolio. Uh, then the business grew into, as I mentioned, to the physical marketing trading. Uh, we're one of the larger gas and, and crude marketers in the country today. And then we also have a midstream asset business. We've, we've had six private equity-backed midstream businesses that we've built and sold. Okay. Well, and we're going to come back to this, but this is fantastic. I, I definitely want your opinion on what happened last sure, week. So sure. we'll get into that. David, I mean, uh, I could keep going, but you want to get you have, want to get us started with some good stuff? Yeah. Well, I, I have to remember what I can and cannot ask and say on, on this deal since I've got a good buddy, Zach, here on <laughs> this. But He knows all my secrets. Yeah. That's... Well, not all of them, but I know a few. <laughs> know a few. Yeah, keep those in my back pocket. Anyway, Zach... Just an incredible career, short amount of time, a lot of success. Blessed with a great family. You're a good-looking guy. Talk to us about how you got started and uh, where you are today. We like to, you know, get a little background on our, on our guest. That's Tell the fourth time from. today, though, he said that you're a good-looking guy. So this is – I feel honored with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's four deep on that one. So. Yeah, I got two people yeah. that find me attractive, David and my wife. <laughs> yeah, sure. So um, – you know, my whole family has zero interest or have no business in oil and gas. So I was a newbie. Uh, my business partner, uh, a guy named Gil Bersiaga, I knew I grew up with. And uh, he was one of the six founders of Natural Gas Clearinghouse, which became Dynagy. Uh, or Dynagy. And so um, I knew him through his daughter. And uh, we actually went to a church camp together and, and unfortunately got kicked out of the camp together, which doesn't say a whole lot about us. On our uh, somber ride home, I asked him what he did. I knew that he had a bunch of money and I was, I wanted a bunch of money. And so that was my initial interest in oil and gas. Went to A&M, graduated with a finance degree. You're not going to get a whoop over here from us. We're not Aggies. So. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah. No, you know, there you go. Nice. Yeah, Jonathan. Jonathan. Nice. Jonathan. Jonathan is an Aggie. Yeah. Um, well, he's seen oh, like we got, a, we got the, our audience in the background. We got a couple of Aggies back yeah. there. See, well, there's so. only two smart guys here. <laughs> um, and so I uh, started in commodity trading with Coke Industries, moved to Duke Energy, um, where I was trading power, natural gas, 
Enron imploded, all the merchants were imploding. So we're seeing this just crazy disruption in the market. I had reconnected with Gil and we saw an opportunity in this disruption for, for a void to really take our trading knowledge and start to work on the producer's behalf. That's kind of was the genesis of ARM. It really was kind of a consulting company. And just, I think every time we kept growing, uh, you know, we would look for, you know, producer would come to with a need. We'd see an opportunity. We just kept, the, the business kept growing and splintering. And so it's kind of come to what I would say a fairly diversified organization. You know, we've got, I think over 200 employees today, offices in uh, five different cities and, uh, we have offices in uh, Calgary and Mexico City. And so the business has actually really, really done very well. You're a Houston guy, right? That's right. Okay. Yeah, born and raised. Okay. So, so let's talk about that. How many producers are you working with Masamenos today? Uh, about uh, 150 probably. Okay. Um, so, you know, we, and that's across the spectrum of hedge advisory, marketing, and and, mid, and midstream. Some, you know, we'll, we'll do two or three services, some just one. Sure. So talk to me about uh, Mexico. Obviously, y'all y'all have increased y'all's activity in Mexico and, and are doing a lot. There. Yeah, I think we we stepped back a couple of years ago and saw that we had uh, our hands on a lot of what we considered captive supply. And we felt the need that eventually the producers and the end users would meet. And, you know, if you were a midstream guy, you were a middleman and we were concerned we'd be cut out. And so we really sought, started going out and seeking out demand. Obviously, you look at LNG exports, you have a lot of uh, demand coming globally. But for our partners to the south, we saw a huge emergence of demand there. And so we started working with a couple of different partners. We have a joint venture partner out of Monterey um, that was able to bring and, and aggregate cons cons uh, consumers to us. And so we did that probably about two years ago. So one of the largest suppliers of gas to Mexico today for, for private companies. Um, and we want to continue to grow that. I mean, it's a, it's a new market. It's got a tremendous amount of growth. And again, it's just such close proximity. We feel like Mexico eventually will have to compete with Atlantic Basin LNG. How how was their government change uh, last year? Did, did it change how you deal with clients down there? For sure, for yeah. sure, it definitely slowed things down uh, uh, by far. Sense. And so, you know, you still it is still in such the infancy of the market. I mean, you you historically had. PIMEX, which supplied all the gas to CFE, which is the power utility. So now CFE is able to go and procure their own gas. Um, and so you really have had, you know, with the change of government, you have all new people you have to deal with. And so we saw a lot of potential projects be put on hold. But, you know, look, I, I'm, I've been pleasantly surprised with them continuing to push forward. It's just it's definitely different than the older or the previous regime. Yeah. Obviously, we can, we can talk micro issues all day long. But for the benefit of our audience, which is very broad and global, we could spend a little bit of time on on some of the macro issues that you are in a unique position to, I think, comment on based on what we're seeing with, you know, the effects of uh, the global reaction to coronavirus. And then at the same time, the colliding of, of uh, OPEC plus and how that has affected the commodity markets. Obviously, you're kind of in a unique position and that turbulence is not necessarily a bad thing for you, but it certainly is challenging for our economy and a lot of our uh, companies that we are familiar with and work with upstream, midstream, downstream. That being said, can you comment on, uh, for the benefit of our audience, uh, you and I had some conversation offline about this, how do we get to a negative oil price? Yeah, I think, um, so, you know, remember, the WTI kind of paper contract, um, that's a one point in time. And it, if you, most of crude producers 
their physical contract is set up when they call it uh, calendar monthly average, meaning that it is the one day settle every single day of that month, it goes into an average. So while that negative 37 certainly was bad, it really brought down the April average by $4. Um, that, so let's now talk how it happened. And what was the April average for the benefit of the audience? Uh, I think it's going to be kind of mid-teens. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and, and May is, is, is obviously not looking very good. So, you know, I would tell you that. Um, it, lower than that? Yeah. Uh, so May right now is two-thirds of the June contract, one-third July. Um, yeah, probably about the same. Yeah. You know, look, I, we do think the low is in. Um for what it's worth. You think the what? The low is in. I mean, okay. to take away the minus 37, you know, like if you just back up, we we have one of our JV partners that where we bring oil across the dock, they'll take it then to the international market and then we share cost and, and revenues. And so we have a unique insight in seeing kind of global demand. They came to us in early March um, and said, we see no bid for May barrels. Uh, globally, you're usually two months in advance. And uh, we were, we were, we were shell shocked. We said, what do you mean? No bids. Like at any price, sell it. There was zero bids. And we really, we got on the phone with all of our customers and a number of private groups and said, look, it's going to get bad and started walking through shutting economics. And I remember we had one call with one private equity group. I said, you know, he was really walking through why it doesn't make sense for them to shut in and all the risks. I said, no, no, you don't understand. The market is going to force you to shut in, not price. They're just going to say, I can't take your barrels. That is the essence of COVID. I mean, it just is something that you know, market just goes and price into storage. And then they say, when there's no more storage, it goes back into the ground. That's where I'm going with this. That's what happened with the May WTI bullet contract, the NYMEX contract. And so you had a tremendous amount of paper trading that goes on. On Monday was ICE settlement. Tuesday was the NYMEX, uh, the Merck settlement. And people felt that the May-June spread was so wide that it would come in. And so like on, at Armit sometimes, we'll take physical delivery of, an, of a NYMEX contract. Well, these hedge funds went to try to take delivery at Cushing. While Cushing inventories weren't full, all the storage space was fully leased out. And so they could not catch a bid. Um, and huh. that's what happened was at some point you priced it so much, you said, I'm willing to mess up my operational storage at minus $40. Someone's willing to take it. And so that was, that was really it. You want to take physical delivery, that's fine. But if you can't move it, oil's worthless. And then you got to pay someone to move it. And so... Um, I think you're going to see that in some of your May physical pricing and, and not necessarily possibly Cushing, but I think you're going to see it in the Bakken and in those places where these net back prices to the producer could be close to zero. The good news is, is that you know, hope is on the horizon. I mean, COVID started with China and then it started moving West. We're now where we were concerned we were able to flow May, we're able to flow some May barrels internationally. And so as Europe starts to come back online, that's where we push a lot of our, our international barrels. It will get better. Um, doesn't mean commodity price necessarily going to get better. Um, but just at least some demand. That's right. Right. That's right. I mean, that's just, we weren't necessarily oversupplied. We were over-delivered. That's the, you know, that's the best way I would put it. And that you had 20 million barrels a day that had no home. And there's only so much storage, just not built for that. You know, listen, I know that this is kind of an unfair question because this the word unprecedented is the word that gets you sure. used, right? But when this happened, I, I'm a manufacturer, so I know what it immediately, I know what that's going to look like to a manufacturer that if something slows down, you know, how it backs up. What was your initial reaction when you saw the Saudi, uh, Russia initial, I don't want to say war, but yeah. whatever, whatever you want to call that, 
and then combined with COVID and the slowdown, did you kind of see it maybe a week out going, Ooh, this is going to be yeah, so, um, something. So look, so you back up. I remember that sod OPEC kind of pissy match was that Friday, uh, prior to the Houston spring break. And, um, you know, I think we all know the EMP industry was, was certainly fractured going into that. Uh, capital had dried up. If I heard one more thing about ESG, I was going to vomit. Um, you know, no one liked EMP. No one liked oil and gas business. We were just bad. We were the coal industry. And so, you know, we felt like, you know, the producer, it was going to be tough sledding for the next year or two. When that happened Friday, um, I felt like that was a knockout punch for oil and gas companies. Saturday, though, was probably, I think, like probably the saddest day for me just because there were still news that maybe the sods were going to do something. And we all were watching the OSP price. Um, I haven't worked a full Saturday in a long time. I worked that Saturday. And when I saw the OSP price hit minus seven, I went, oh, shit, this is, you know, this is the nail in the coffin. And um, what I've been pleasantly surprised by is, one, how well all these oil and gas companies, for all the crap they take, they've actually managed their business really well. Um, yeah, they, they hit uh, a really hot debt market and whatnot, but, you know, and they're certainly going to have to work things out, but I don't think it's as bad as everyone just foresaw. Um, again, not saying that you have equity values that are negative. I'm, I'm not disagreeing with that, but I just think that as far as Bruce just shutting in the door that day, but I, I prior to COVID, I knew this was going to be, this is going to be bad. Um, now the positive is. We felt we were pretty bullish in 2022 because we felt like there we had steps that was going to get production to turn over. Eventually, you're going to have to, you know, all the cuts that OPEC had done, you'd have to work those off. The only positive about the Russian sods was they just ripped the Band-Aid off and said, we're going to flood the market and capitulation. Um, you know, when they came back, I, I think they clearly underestimated the impact of COVID. We did. You know, again, like I go back to when we get that call from our JV partner saying no bids. I mean, that's when you start going, holy hell. So now I just think that it caused those two countries to capitulate, come back. I'm surprised that they are willing to cut 6 million barrels a day through April 2022. That, that is shocking to me. It makes me a little nervous about demand, permanent demand destruction, uh, to be honest. You know, I would tell you that, um, you know, that surprised us. It has absolutely shocked me how quickly producers have shut in. Um, I do think that whether... Granted, the minus 37 was just one point in time and does not, it just really doesn't impact their May barrels or I guess their April barrels as much as they realized. I just think the fact that it went to minus 37 scared down. We are seeing producers shut in right and left. I think it's more of a psychological it is, absolutely. issue. And that's why I wanted to talk about that with you today, because I think even, even those who are in the air quote oil and gas business don't fully understand how the commodities are priced and the value that is associated with it. And so negative 37 people just think the oil and gas industry, even still today is dead. I mean, well, that well, was you'd such be surprised. a psychological well, like, look, blow. We, we have, we have leased a lot of storage around the country. And I remember we had people, oil and gas folks and private equity folks reaching out to me saying, Hey, you're locking in minus 60 bucks or $60 barrel spread. That's awesome. That's not really how storage works, nor the spreads worked. And so, again, it was just one day at a time. So everything's done on that calendar and monthly average. And so, yeah, I, I think you're right, David. It's just shock and awe. And then the other thing it did was it got the USO contract to capitulate. And now they've changed. And that was holding it up, I think, artificially. You know, prior to 
COVID reaching 20 million barrels a day of demand loss, we felt like Q2 would be in the mid-teens and we felt like December would be, December of 2020 would be 37 to $40 a barrel. I think we still feel pretty confident about that. You know, 12 to 15, maybe $17, kind of average 2Q. And we feel good about 37 to 40. And so it's just, you've got to work through this, this, just this glut. And then the, the inventory, while you're going to be more demand than supply in 2021, we're going to get really excited. You just have such a large inventory balance. It's going to take time to work off. I think the other big misunderstanding too, and Ryan Sitton brought it up when he was on the show with us um, the day after the open meeting with uh, the railroad, railroad commission, right. was that uh, I think the other thing people don't understand is the fact that uh, based on our current refining capacity, which was largely built for foreign oil because we were not the producer uh, then that we are now, that for optimal refining, we're we're blending, you know, heavier crude with our light sweet crude, sure. which is predominantly here, and that there is still some dependency on some foreign oil coming into this country. And I I I think it's interesting that there's been a lot of calls for that not to come into the country. But the reality is, you know, Motiva is 100% owned by Saudi Aramco now. So right. it's no longer Shell. And I just don't think it's going to do that much. I yeah. mean, at the end of the day, it makes great press, but it's just not going to matter. Right. Um, so, so again, another psychologically damaging, confusing, uh, emotional, gut-wrenching misunderstanding of, of the industry that you know, that we, there's a reason we have Canadian crude. There's a reason we have Middle Eastern or heavier crude along with our crude that we're also exporting as well. That that we get that out in time. I mean, that's the, the world's biggest problem is one, uh, uh, communication issues. But two, I think education of, of really how everything works. That's right. And yeah. I mean, again, we... I think that's what you saw in the minus 37. You had a lot of hedge funds, you know, that are multi-strategy funds get caught upside down on oil. Um, and, and I don't think you're going to see that in the June uh, TI contract. That's interesting because they were saying that that was going to happen again next month. No, no way. No. Because, I mean, one, the USO ETF, which is a long only, uh, they already rotate. They rotated out of May by April 15th. They're already rotating out of June. And so, yeah, I, I don't, I mean, there's certainly, I'm, I'm seeing puts trade that are negative, which is fascinating to me. Um, but, yeah, I just don't think that's going to happen. I, like that was a, fl- I don't think we'll ever see minus 37 ever again. Well, I mean, you know, you talk about, I don't know, you were, what day was that? That was, that was during the week. It was Monday. Yeah, Monday. And uh, I was in the office and I, when it went to 15, you're like, woof, this is, mm-hmm. this is going to hurt. And then it went to 10 and you're like, you started just staring at the computer thinking, what is, what's happening here? And you were taking screenshots of the way down on, on your yeah. phone, trying to st- text it out to your buddies or whatnot. And then it just, at, at you know, a dollar, you just started laughing. It was so shockingly low that you'd never seen anything like it. And then it goes negative and our entire office just kind of stood around looking at the computer, trying to figure out what was happening. And it, it if for those of us that aren't in the day-to-day trading world that you're, you're mentioning, which I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm essentially a layman when it comes to uh, the price of oil, what, the, what drives it here and there. It was the most shocking thing I've ever seen. I remember when I worked in, I interned in 1998 and I believe oil was 12, $13 a barrel. Yeah. And the guy that I worked for at that time, he says, man, if we could, 
if we could just get back to $30 a barrel, we'd make a ton of money. <laughs> you know, and you look at this now and thinking, what would it, what would that guy, I wish I could call him actually to know well, what those, he's thinking. Yeah, those, well, were, you, those were conventional barrels. These barrels today cost a lot more money to Yeah, it, it was interesting you talk about that, the minus price and whatnot. I stepped off to grab a bite to eat, went back to my Bloomberg terminal. And I remember looking at the percentage change and it did, the math didn't make it make sense to me because it was saying $7. I didn't realize it was negative seven. Yeah. <laughs> and you, when I saw that, then you just knew there's no telling how how low this thing goes. Right. So, and so, quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So so there's been some commentary, and I won't I won't name names, but there is there's a producer that is that is uh asked for an investigation to be held to look into this. The the negative thirty seven, was that a was that a trading algorithm glitch or is it technical or was that truly something that could happen? I, I don't know. You know, I what's really interesting about it is usually when these things happen, I mean uh, traders love to gossip and you always hear about this funds blowing up or this fund. I've not heard anything. And, um, I mean, small different things, you know, there's ETFs that are, you know, coming from, you know, Chinese retail investors. I've not seen anything. And with that type of implosion, I mean, there were some people that won and there's some people that definitely lost a ton of money. So yeah. I, I don't know. I, I don't think it was, Again, ICE was able to, um, when ICE allowed prices to go negative, and certainly gave momentum. Again, anytime you get this close to expiry, volume is pretty light as well. Yeah. And so, you know, as a trader, when you're running a, a book, you never want to, you know, and we don't necessarily run a spec book. That's not like, we're, we try to more optimize assets. And if we're, if we're in the speculative market, it's more around locking in our storage spreads. Well, speaking of storage, you know, again, my, my brain manufacturing, it, are, I see people trying to advertise that they're going to, they can build storage around it. Do you think more storage is going to come online to, to alleviate um, some of I this? I think, well, we've pipeline, seen, or what do you think? Yeah, is, we've seen a lot of people trying to come up with those ideas. I and mean, we've had groups pitch us in the last two weeks, a number of groups. The problem is, is I say, that is a great idea. Um, I need that tomorrow. And they said, well, we can do it in six months. Well, the spreads don't, you know, it doesn't work. And so um, I think you're going to see a lot of groups pitch we've, it. We've seen a lot. But it just, it just, it frankly just doesn't work. Um, and so. Just pure timing. Yeah. I mean, just the, the spreads are really um, from here through December. And, and, and so uh, the other thing I'd say too is, you know, we leased as much storage we get our hands on and then there was, it was gone. You get to minus 37, everyone started coming out of the woodwork. I've got 150,000. Yeah. I've got 500,000. What was considered operational, suddenly you can squeeze it out. And that's another reason why I think, you know, you're actually seeing a bid in the Permian right now because people are saying, hey, I, storage is suddenly coming available. You know, just, you know, bits and pieces and producers shutting in. So you're trying to bid producers to put to buy their barrels. Yeah, I think there's, again, knowledge is everything. And it, 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 it always... Uh, it doesn't really shock me anymore, but I'm I'm surprised to your point when suddenly there's no storage and then all of a sudden there is storage. And you know what is what is what is true production? What is what is true demand and and all that? Uh, talk to us about uh, your your thoughts in regards to demand, particularly as it relates to gas and and I would say global demand long term. My th my belief is that we are going to see demand for oil and gas go up globally long term, because I still think a large part of the world is developing and still, quite frankly, asleep. They're going to get tired of burning dung and coal. Hopefully there's going to be enough uh, momentum from the, the 
the environmentalists to, you know, push some of these foreign governments to utilize more natural gas. There's, you know, coal, you know, portable cold fusion is not there yet. The, the death knell for the oil and gas industry. So talk to us about that. We're seeing, we're seeing gas come up a little bit. Uh, I was looking at it today. I think it was earlier before you got here. It was like a dollar ninety seven. Yeah, I mean, so here's what I'd say: natural gas. Natural gas guys have obviously had their heads beaten in the producer wise for the last five to seven years. Uh, what the market's done an incredible job of is they've literally gone out and find inelastic demand, meaning that regardless of the price, the demand stays there. So we call it the four pillars. Our head of fundamentals has been banging on this drum for years, and it's. Export, LNG exports, right? Five years ago, zero, you're eight, nine BCF a day. Uh, Mexican exports, five BCF a day. Uh, industrial demand, uh, Exxon Sabic, all these big plants. And then coal, coal plants have been mothballed by natural gas. So you had this 18 to 20 Bs of true inelastic demand that does not go away, come in the last four or five years. And, you know, let's say next year as well, kind of aggregate. But you know, the, the Marcellus Utica outperformed, outperformed like we never thought and never thought that they could get that much gas. Then you had all this associated gas. And I think the market just became a little bit asleep that it does not matter. I don't care how much demand. There's so much gas that is readily available at three bucks. Well, two things have happened. Uh, one, no one wants to put a dollar in an EMP's pocket anymore, right? They just said, the commodity price is too volatile, and I think there is definitely a step change in risk reward, meaning that like, if I want to invest in oil and gas producer, I have to go twice in the last six years. The Sods and the Russians got together and crushed this industry. I don't need a 22% IRR. I need a 5X, because how do I manage that geopolitical risk? So that's, again, so I think gas producers have, will struggle to you know, attract capital. Um, and then two, with the oil price coming off, suddenly all of our associated gas has gone away. You know, I would say at ARM, we are incredibly bullish Q1 of 21 gas and forward. Um, we think this is this is going to get a real interesting time because if you have a normal winter, I think gas price has to go so high that it finds demand destruction. So what does that mean? That means it goes up and says exports might turn off a little bit. I mean, I just don't know. I mean, these are kind of uncharted territory. Um, and, I, and I really think the next three years at ARM, what we're really excited about is one, we think you're going to see some high prices. You're also going to see a lot of swing, a lot of volatile prices. And with this base supply that was always growing, suddenly shrinking, now weather-driven demand events, um, you know, natural disasters, now come back into the fold. If you have a cold-as-hell winter, gas price, you know what those things run. And so um, I think you're going to start to see seasonality come back. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I have a sneaking suspicion the market is going to look similar to 04 to 08. Not that high of price, because you have $15 gas. I'm not calling that by any means. But I just think that that volatility. I mean, you know, you could see, you know, gas go from $2 to 4 bucks in one year. You could see oil be 30 up to 60 and come back. You're going to start swinging like that. A quick word from our sponsors, and then we're right back to the show. Prang & Associates, the global energy search leader. Prang & Associates is the world's leading executive search firm totally dedicated to the energy industry. Over our 39 years, we have assisted more than 750 management teams and boards in 75 countries and conducted nearly 3,600 engagements. For more information, please visit prang.com. Daniel Energy Partners, in-basin research you can trust. 
a leading provider of U.S. oil field research, known for its original boots-on-the-ground research approach, as well as its famous barbecue events. Daniel Energy Partners utilizes both its extensive network of top oil field professionals and frequent in-basin field tours to provide real-time market intelligence. Visit DanielEP.com for more information. Galtway Marketing. Answer this question. What makes your company different? You have seven seconds to catch a customer's attention. Galtway Marketing can build your brand and craft your message for maximum impact across all your marketing efforts. Visit galtwaymarketing.com slash 0360 to bring your company into the 21st century. Thank you to our sponsors. And now back to the show. So to that point regarding natural events, do you see artificial geopolitical events helping bring back a, a risk premium to? For sure. For sure. I mean, like right now, I mean, obviously Libya's production, you know, basically is offline. No one cares. Yeah. Um, and so what now what I think will have to happen is when we get in 2022, if truly OPEC has six million barrels a day offline, and I know it's from a higher level or whatnot, but let's just say they have three million barrels a day. Well, if people start bombing each other, that's 3 million barrels a day that you can put back into the system. So that should keep a lid on prices. But I think once you work that off, and if you, we really think U.S. production is going to come off like it's looking, um, and you've worked that to the system, you get in the second half of 22, and all OPEC's full running, and you have some geopolitical events. Uh, I mean, I don't know how high, you know how high can prices go. And then I think the other thing that concerns us is what's happening to Houston and the EMP industry reminds me when Enron 01 went down. Um, you had all this talent in the trading business, you know, suddenly flooded. People left the city. And I think you're going to see people leave EMP. Uh, you know, I'm concerned about it. Mm -hmm. And so to go back and try to attract people, right, um, I think it's going to be tough. And, they, you know, these are really smart entrepreneurial people. They'll go into other industries. And, I like, we saw a lot of people on the trading business go into investment banking and consulting, and they just never came back. And so, um, so if you do get a high price, I don't know how long it takes. Like in 15 to 16, if you're an oil and gas company, you got laid off. You just popped over to a new PE-backed company. Mm -hmm. Today, that's not the case. We were just talking about that, actually. And, you know, the, we were speaking of it, of the work ethic of the oil and gas person going into new industry, right? And because we do think, I mean, I'm sure everybody in industry thinks they're great, but oil and gas people seem to work a little bit harder. Sure. And, you know, there is there is concern that these people disappear, especially if you're a Houston resident. Yeah. I mean, you know, this, this is a podcast in over 120 cities and Houston, I mean, they're writing articles in the New York times about how bad Houston's about to take whatever is going to happen to us. So it is, it is concerning that we lose a talent pool that, you know, we maybe just got back. Um, we lost in a generation in the eighties I and mean, that's what for sure, how many of our friends are really in oil and gas, right? A lot of ours are commercial real estate or lawyers. You know, I remember when I first got in the early 2000s, I was one of the only people that came into oil and gas out of my graduating right. college class. So it is it is concerning that we lose a broad swath of the talent that we have. Well, and I think you're going to see oil and gas companies, unfortunately, hide behind COVID to make necessary cuts. I mean, look, it's it's tough to let people go. You know, even if you need to make the cuts, it's just tough. That's their livelihood, you know. Um, and so I do think you're going to see, I think these cuts were going to get done if it wasn't for COVID because of the solid Russian price war. Um, COVID, I think you're going to see a lot of companies hide behind that. Well, I mean, efficiencies are efficiencies, for sure. right? Those, for sure. It, I, it is difficult to, as you call it, and I don't disagree with the terminology, hide behind it because it is, a, I don't want to say an easy out, but 
it, it'll be interesting to see what efficiencies have been brought on in the last, you know, they we've been designing this smarter oil field for many years and it, what, what efficiencies they actually do implement. Well, I'll say even for us, right? I mean, where we're seeing it, we're seeing it in our midstream business, we're seeing CapEx come off drastically. Um, we're, we are actively trying to hire people. It, we feel like it's kind of a buyer's market for talent. Um, not that, you know, you know, we're going to try to lowball someone, but we, we just have more supply than demand. And so I think, you know, it's, it's going to be an interesting time. Like I said, it's, it's sad for the city because I, I do think that, you know, you're going to lose some talent. Again, it reminds me a lot of Enron Owam and Arthur Anderson went down. That It feels similar to that to me. So like, can I email my resume to you before or after? Yeah. Right, we we know how much money you make. Yeah. So don't give us that. Kind of, we, we can't afford you, David. <laughs> we'll move the podcast over there. It'll be great. <laughs> yeah. You know, real quick, we touched on it a minute ago, but I, I our proration. Do you have an opinion on that? I mean, is that something you've uh, studied enough that you want to give an opinion? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I I'm against it, frankly. Like, I just think uh, I believe in free markets. And case in point, look at the producers. The producers are making the decision, right? They're yeah. saying um, if this is above my opex that checks the box. Then they're saying what, then they evaluate the risk of the reservoir. You know, there's regulatory, there's land. No, I, I think, uh, I like with what like New Mexico did saying, hey, we're gonna remove that regulatory that if you need to shut in, I think that's okay. I just think free markets work the best. I think we were, we were had this, had this phenomena been, if we were gonna continue to see negative pricing, which obviously that can't continue. But right. To, to make a to make a call on proration and by the time they would actually vote on it and it get yeah it wouldn't have mattered it, it that's wouldn't right. have mattered and but I do think it was interesting that that Ryan and the commission brought it up for discussion but I th you know I'm a free market person as well I certainly hate to see it because a lot of these folks are our friends that are getting crushed right and and in fairness some of these companies uh, could have been managed a little bit better. Well, I'll say this: but like there I, are know, some that have been managed better, and you just you know it's just a, it's not unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. You yeah, know, I mean, I'll, I'll, you know, look, I'm not a political person by any means. Um, you know, I do appreciate Trump trying to put that together with the Russians and Sods. I think he was saying, I think he felt like you know he had all these other things going on, and certainly. COVID's more important, but I, I really believe one of the reasons he was working so hard on that, because he felt like this would be one less bailout he's got to do. If he could, you know, $30 oil is different than seven. $30 oil, you know, the haves and have nots. At seven, everyone goes bankrupt. And so, uh, you know, again, it's not going to persist, but cash is king. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I, I do certainly get worried about producers getting a negative price and going, well, that doesn't work with my cash flow. Yeah. Well, yeah, everyone keeps talking about how there's going to be a downturn of you know, six to 12 months or six to 18 months, pick your number. Well, six months is a long time to, to float, to tread water for sure. There's no money coming in. And you're right. There's a huge difference between, between $7 and $30. So there's, there's a lot of uncertainty over the next six months of just how destructive that is. And it is, I, you know, I don't, you say you're not political, which is, that's fine. This shows a political as well, but it is interesting to see the oil and gas world who has They've always been a pull yourself up by your bootstraps type yeah. of mentality to all of a sudden be in a position where they've got to go to different corners of the earth looking for money. Yeah. And, you know, I'm I'm a small business owner and you're a business owner yourself. And it's interesting when you fill out PPP loans for the first time ever and you're looking at this, you're like, man, I am going to be waiting for a check from the government, hoping that nothing screws it up. And, you know, again, that's us. We're a small business. But how many of these larger businesses with 
three, 500 employees, whatever the number is, right? They're, they're dependent upon something that they've never been dependent for upon. For sure. Well, and again, like I think if you look at what the government's done, I mean, you, you have to tip your hat to them in that they realize that while low prices is, are great for the consumer today, if this industry really has true destruction beyond what we're seeing today, the long-term effects would be really, really tough for, for the U.S. I mean, because we became energy independent, we could punch back to Russia. You know, you could push back on, I mean, it's a lot of places that own a lot of the oil reserves around the world are, are you know, not necessarily friendly to the U.S. at all times or don't always agree with some of the, our policies. And yeah. so yeah, it, it, it is a big stick to be able to wag. For sure. What I think is interesting, <clears throat> the positive side to all this stuff is how illuminating it has been to how how fragile um, some of our businesses are in our economy to certain types of things, but also uh, how dependent, <clears throat> and this will be seen, I think, more and more in the next several months, are dependent upon the global oil and gas industry. Uh, I was reading, been reading a bunch, obviously, uh, a number of articles talking about how challenging this has been for the alternative energy companies as a for result. For sure. Because uh, as you know, what they produce is not storable and, and it has to be consumed or it's just waste. And even those alternative energy uh, businesses are still highly dependent upon the overall oil and gas industry, which right. is kind of interesting. Well, I mean, oil and gas needs to tell a better story. I mean, that's just a simple fact. Yeah, no, I mean, look, I, you know, it's, it's interesting. We're not going to hear a whole lot about ESG right now because prices are so low. David, right? do you want to tell them about your ESG committee? No, uh, he... <laughs> He knows a little bit about it. I, I think ESG stuff, if you just focus on on the environmental piece or whatever, it, I agree with you, Zach. I think what what it is highlighting though is risk and, and more so risk management. And I think it's it's right. we need to get people to think differently where historically we have been in the we've been trained to report on financial results, which are a look back and not necessarily a temperature reading on the health of the company right in the present and how the company is going to perform going into the future. Because as a result of all these, you know, accounting regulations uh, that you can, you can follow, uh, you can hide a lot of sins technically within the law. And it doesn't really, they don't really, the financials don't necessarily speak to the quality of the management, the quality of the culture, the efficiency of the operation, I mean, they do to a certain degree, but not to the degree that I think people want to know about in terms of what creates sustainability, what can what can withstand certain types of, of risks and, and keep moving on. So I think it does highlight the need for for um, deeper and broader thinking on on the subject of how can we get better? And we thought we were good, but we really aren't. And there's lots of the folks that want to say, oh, well, look at all the capital you've destroyed and look at all the environmental damage you've done. But I agree with some of that. But at the same time, though, if that capital would not have been spent, we wouldn't be looking at the low energy prices we are today. They'd be, I think they would be significantly higher globally because a lot of the ingenuity that's fueled the oil and gas industry globally has come out of North America. Oh, no, Canada, but I mean, look, US. if it wasn't for... U.S. production growth, 
we'd be a substantially different commodity price. And you know, my concern with ESG prior to even this was you were seeing such a lack of capital come into the space that eventually production would turn over. You'd get in a short squeeze, oil prices would go to $100, then all the ESG folks would say, see, renewables work. And I'm still concerned about that. I mean, really, yeah. I just, I, you know, you get into that high of commodity price, suddenly all the renewables look fine. And so, you know, look, the oil and gas industry, as you guys know, it's very entrepreneur. We will persevere. Yeah, this this one's tough. Yeah. Um, this is tough. And um, I don't, you know, know what we're going to, you know, what oil and gas companies are going to look like and consolidation and whatnot. Clearly, they've, there's too much debt, you know, in the, in the industry. You're going to have to, I do think that, you know, break even price needs to be substantially higher. And just when you look at all in cost and, you know, I, I think you will see a commodity price in 22 be, be pretty darn high, frankly. Yeah. 2022. Yeah. Okay. Audience just hold out for two and a half more yeah, years. Hold your breath for that yeah. for 30 months <laughs> and you're set. <laughs> that's the, that's the hard part. Well, and, and look, I, what I think is gonna be interesting too. And like, you know, the, I think about this for our midstream investments is that, you know, I think you could see a substantially high price in 22. I think the production and the activity will be a significantly lag. Whereas, you know, you'd see price, you see activity quickly follow. You can see a 12 month lag on that. I really believe that. Okay. So it's actually 42 months before. <laughs> so this is getting better. Then we might have to edit out the whole well, second just, when I start crying here. In I a just minute. think if I'm an investor and I'm going to invest in oil and gas and it's, you know, uh, into 21 and you get to 50, $4 barrel. We get excited. You just went through negative and you went through 12 and you go, okay, well, when's the next OPEC meeting? Four months. Well, what if they choose to take it off? I mean, those are the, I mean, that's the S and D balance. If you're one barrel a day undersupplied, price goes up one barrel over oversupplied goes down. And you just got to know that. And so I think you're just seeing a re rating of risk, meaning that if you're going to invest oil and gas, you're going to want to probably a higher return. So this is actually a pretty interesting. So if you come to visit the studio, it's pretty interesting. We're in a full production studio, as you can see here. And then we have a, the glass where our producer sits. And today we have an audience back there kind of just sitting in and listening on. Normally we don't have people back there. So it's kind of funny that they're here. And I promise you, if they just heard the 30 to 42 month uh, activity return numbers, yeah, they're all, <laughs> this is a live audience. This is a, the best thing you could get. Normally, that's supposed to be a mirrored glass, so you can't see <laughs> the people that you're ruining their lives back there. But uh, it's this is great watching them. I mean, look, uh, just to be clear. Like we we think you see seventy five, eighty dollars in twenty twenty two. Just I mean, we don't. I mean, my team will kill me for for saying that, but that's just we we don't actually know if we average, but we think it hits that. I mean, we really do, um, barring. Yeah, massive permanent demand destruction. We think you will see some demand destruction permanently from COVID. I mean, just look, really? I, yeah, we really do. Like, I, I think you're going to see, I guarantee you in nine months when we're going to hire Aggies and unfortunately Longhorns and different people, my HR is going to come to me and say, hey, for us to be competitive, we need to offer these kids every other Friday work from home because XYZ company does it. Yeah. Because that's what I've seen. With us. Business travel is <laughs> going to shrink. Yeah. And I just think that, you know, look, our trading side hasn't missed a beat you know, working from the house. And yeah, I just, you know, the people that want to get back in the office, frankly, are people that have young kids, Yeah, you know, <laughs> right. And it's just all there's to it. Like my kids are, are teenagers. They sleep till two in the afternoon. No big deal for me. Yeah. But I just think that 
you you start to add that up and you've got 300 million plus people. And if you get a workforce that suddenly can work every other Friday or every Friday, those are the kind of things that now look, you add give or take a million barrels a day of global demand to, for oil every year, sometimes higher, sometimes higher. Just, so you're going to be 10 million barrels a day higher in 10 years. You know, I just, you know, the question is, can we attract it for supply? You know, all those deep offshore projects, right? They go right back into the drawer. So I think we'll be fine. It's just, but um, I do think you're going to see permanent demand. We're, we're working on a, uh, we're, I mean, it may not happen, so I'm just going to talk about it. But we're we've been emailing back and forth, trying to work with United Airlines, and because I said, look, this is a great audience for you. They like the numbers. So as we started talking, I sent them some reports about oil and gas. Just I said, hey, look, this is something you guys should review. And then they sent me some reports back of what they think is going to happen for them. And it is going to it's it's one thing to be in an oil and gas world where we have to face this reality, but the travel. You know, the airlines, they're looking at this going, business travel is going to shrink substantially. It's almost exactly what you said. The only hope would be that those people that take off on that Friday to work from home, I mean, if they work from home, right? I mean, couldn't they just very easily go on vacation? And, totally agree. And they're, they're, you know, so hopefully they're supplemented. Yeah, I mean, look, I think travel. short term, right? Like for the next two years, a family probably doesn't get in a, a plane and go to Disney World. They might rent an SUV, an RV, and drive to some national park, you know, those are, you know, so maybe call that a wash. I don't know. I just, I, I do think business travel is going to change. I agree. With I mean, that. What, yeah. I'm pushing our BD team to say, Hey, look, I don't know if we're going to be, you know, shaking hands, uh, and seeing our CEOs face to face by the end until in December, you know, our, uh, our senior pastor interviewed the Methodist CEO this Saturday. Methodist is a huge, I mean, for all hospitals, he's a huge sponsor of Texans. He's walking through all these things. It's live on YouTube. It's awesome. The most sobering thing was he's like, I see a zero chance the Texans play a football game this year with fans. I went, oh, good gosh. Wow. You know, so now. Bill O'Brien has never heard better news than that right <laughs> yeah. there. But I just like, he's, I mean, I just think, so I just don't know what that looks like. So, you know, yeah. getting to permanent demand destruction, there's going to be a little bit. I really believe that. You, you mentioned something, uh, and, and only because of time. I just want, I know that you're, we're, we're want to be respectful of how much time you've got. You, you guys don't do much, I don't want to call it advertising, but promotion. Um, right. Do you do much marketing? And the reason I'm saying that is you mentioned your BD guys. No, because because I mean I think for uh, the the primary reason is because yeah you know, some of it is like traders are are so secretive in nature. I mean, it I struggle to get my traders to tell things internally. I'm like we're all on the same team here, guys. Like they're just like oh you know like because you're always looking for that arb or whatnot. And so for us, you know, if we do any marketing or whatnot, it, it's it's more face to face, and we're walking through hey. These are trends we're seeing because a lot of the things we do is just proprietary in nature. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, we do put out a, uh, a weekly kind of a seven page fundamental report, but it's to a proprietary list. And even yeah. then we restrict certain things that we just handle internal. Well, the reason I was asking that is as much to know if if new technologies are working for you. Is there things that have come out that you mentioned you know, working from home. So obviously, I imagine you're probably doing more Zoom meetings. For sure. Are there other technologies or even a Zoom that have become very front and center for your business that maybe you hadn't thought of? You know, so I'll say this, you know, information is key for us. And the amount of services and with technology that you can get your hands on information. We subscribe to service that shoots a laser and tells us what Cushing tanks, you know, through a drone. Yeah, you know, it's just like that information is so readily available. 
that we can, you know, we use services that can tell you exactly how much gas flowed in every single pipe in the country. You know, just all those kind of things where you used to have a lot of data aggregation that was very manual. And so one of the things that we're working on because we have the different businesses and while everyone in our company works really well with each other, sometimes information is not always flowed very well. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the things we're starting to work on. And then I, I just, every month, it seems like there's a new service that has a different data aggregation. That's been really impressive, you know, to where we can tell you what a well looks like. I mean, there's just, you know, in that county, um, you know, we, we chose to hire a petroleum engineer from oil and gas company a couple of years ago. And just some of the things that he's done and what he can provide and data he gets, I mean, you would think it's like a 20 person team. I mean, it's, it's really, really quite impressive. So those are kind of things yeah. like in our business, like our analytics, you know, we get a ton of horsepower out of a very small amount of group. You mentioned uh, we'll kind of trans transition. One of the things I told you is that what's interesting about the show and people want to know how a person's business life evolved, but also the personal life, you know, not overly personal, but how did how did you kind of come about in this in this position? So you're you, you mentioned early 2000 Enron. So you were probably a late or, you know, 2000, 2001 graduate. Yep. How has it been over the last 20 years? You mentioned you haven't worked a full Saturday in a long time, but you did the other day. So you're clearly in a position where a lot of your hard work has paid off. What what are some of that? I mean, how did that feel? What did yeah, that look like? You know, it's, it's interesting. 20? So, um, you know, our, our business, you know, we started in 04. I was 26 at the time. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Right. I just like I knew I was at Duke and uh, they had suspended all raises and I wasn't getting a bonus. So going on my own, like there wasn't a whole lot of risk because we were doing voluntary severance there. Right. And so. What's been interesting for me is we've gone from, you know, one person to eight people to 12 to 24 to 40 to 200 plus. Um, and, you know, being an extrovert that I am, like it just, it, I would say my circle's gotten smaller. You know, I find that, you know, one, I, I'm, I've always been a big believer in hiring people that I think are smarter than me. And I've, we've surrounded ourselves with just incredible people. Like how things have changed, like, look, every day, and I tell people, anyone starts their own business, you know, I was like, get ready. One, it's going to be your baby. You're going to, you're going to think about when you're taking a shower, you're think about when you're sleeping, you know, it's, it's going to be your life. And the highs are higher and lows are lower. Today, look, the business has a ton of success. Still today, every day, the highs are higher, lows are lower. It's just different. Um, and so, you know, what's probably different for me now is just like, I spent a lot of time trying to pour into, into our people. Like last week I did nine virtual town halls and it's not something I wanted to do. You know, I'm like, I'd rather dig into fundamentals and, and look at the market, but that's important that our people feel good about that feel good about the business. Um, and then allows them to go out and, and, and really do great things. The other thing I'd say too, I had to get really comfortable with this and it took me a long, long time is that, you know, I would have a certain way of doing things and no, uh, yeah. And, uh, and look, I had to come to, you know, gross with my way might even be better than theirs. But the truth of the matter is if they get the same result, why the hell do I care? And, you know, that was able to chop down my travel quite a bit. Uh, cause trust, I was, you I mean was, just trusting. Yeah. Cause I, like when we were going to pitch or whatever, the CEO, I wanted to be there. And so I try to use my time a little differently like that. And so all, when I get involved, you know, I try to come in, you know, when I think it's a critical, critical time. Are you a reader? Of, uh, of for yeah 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 for sure I, I love I really love digging into like supply demand stuff that's I really you know I could just just some light 
just supply and demand. Really yeah. Don't. Like, like honestly, I just, just, just <laughs> to soothe the soul. Well, it's like, it's one of those things where like, I always feel like, uh, and I've ever since I started, I'm, I've always felt like I'm underwater. Like there's more, I don't know there. I don't know. And so like calling around all these oil and gas CEOs and walking through shut in economics, trying to understand this, like, I was, I was loving it. Well, so I need to give me a book then that you, your favorite supply and demand book that, um, actually, you know what my favorite book, by the way, whoever is the author of this book that you're about to recommend is going to try to figure out what happened when he gets a, yeah, no, actually, a sudden surge in <laughs> book purchases. It's like, what the hell's going on? Yeah. Um, I, I'll tell you what book I really like from, it's actually more trading is new, new trading market wizards. I think is what it's called. It's been so long. But new we, trading markets. Yeah. Wizards. So they was trading market wizards and they came out with a new one. Okay. Here's the premise. They go out and they interview like all the great traders around the world, hedge funds, iBanks, merchants, all these different things. And they basically take their story. And the synopsis of it is every person says, look, it's having great things, doing awesome. Then I blew up. And when I lost all this money, it was so bad, but I learned so much through it, but I didn't lose, I didn't lose everything where I could stay in the game. And, you know, when I think about like, look, at arm, like the story of arm is like two steps forward, one step back. You know, it's when I, when we get ourselves in trouble, which it seems like we happen to do that a lot. Yeah. Not, nothing unethical or illegal by sure. any means, but just, you know, some I mean, mishap. someone's always going to try to chop your legs. Yeah. yeah. And so I find that again, it's not enough where we lose it, but we just learn more. And I think that's one of the reasons like we, and like in myself evaluate risk really, really well. What is, what is your internal engine look like or mentality to look as a business owner, you mentioned at night when you wake up, you're always thinking about the business. I'm sure you've had that moment three. And when your inner chest just starts to heat up, Yeah. what, what is your mindset as an entrepreneur over the last, what is that? 15, 16 years. What, what gets you going? You know, I, I really like uh, new things, right? So like you think about, you know, we, our business continues to morph and grow and change. And so we have these different business units. And so I like to get in when it's new in the beginning, right? Like on midstream, I like the development part. Operating, don't really like it that much, right? There's just, there's no upside. Because if I get a call, it's usually bad. And so, hey, our volumes are higher. Yay. Why aren't they higher more than what I thought? You know, those, so um, I like to get, and I like to be disruptive. Like I, we really, we're kind of contrarian at hearts to try to figure out, hey, this is a new way of thinking about something. That's the way we want to attack it. And so, but what's interesting with us at ARM is like, when we do that, every, it seems like every year we're, we kind of take ourselves to a new level, but you kind of have the fork in the roll and you go, okay, if you go up, this is a massive monument of step change, right? And there's kind of no going back. Um, and so that charges me. Now it gets exhausting too. Cause that, like, that's the, isn't that the problem? Yeah. You're just kind of like, if you choose a different life, you have to live that different life. That's right. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, like luckily we got a lot of hard charging folks in the team. They like to be disruptive. They're bright, they're creative. And I had a board member tell me one time when he was describing arm, he's like, you know what arm is arm is when you put a ton of really smart people together and you give them no rules, um, which can be very dangerous, but I mean, that's what makes it great. And people come up with, really smart, bright, sometimes crazy ideas, but it's a very interesting place. And again, I think that's what kind of gets me charged is like, if we're going to do something in a business that's, that there's already there, can we do something different and take a different tact? Real quick, David, one more thing before you, uh, you got some uh, good questions. Well, I'm, yeah, listen, that espresso kicked in. I'm ready. <laughs> I'm rolling now. Yeah. We're clearly in a time. If you mentioned you're contrarian, disruptive, 
there's this has got to be the most disruptive avail dis, availability for disruption right now. Yeah. With, without sharing anything you don't want to share, I mean, are you guys? I'm sure you're looking at opportunities for disruption right now that you think could implement over the next 36 months or 42. Yeah, look, I mean, I think for us, you know, I will say this, like, look, we've had a great run. Um, while I've hated to see the industry get beaten down, I'm seeing friends lose their jobs from a personal level work-wise, it's the most fun I've had in a long time. It just, it's just so disruptive and there just, there are ample opportunities and you go, you know, if you can be creative, you know, if you can, if you can find the damn capital, there's some really neat things to be done. And I really believe that out of this, you're going to see people come out that none of us have heard of and they're yep. going to create generational worth. I mean, I really believe that. And so we are certainly, you know, we started this really in the last year, kind of seeing a couple trends. And I think we we do, that's one of our strengths is seeing trends before the market. And so we're starting to position ourselves, looking at doing things a little bit different and some different opportunities. So for sure, I mean, we, you know, it's just a matter of can you, you know, I think we want to make sure we're managing capital appropriately, managing risk appropriately. Um, you, you mentioned your your church yeah, a couple of minutes ago. So you're clearly involved with the community. Is there some, is, how do you give back to next generation or current generation? Yes. So um, not, not necessarily from the church perspective, but no, I mean, I just, from yeah, a yeah. So, so, involvement perspective or business. Yeah. So, so the company started a charity four years ago, five years ago. I think Dave, five Dave's one of the first ago. people that I, I shake down for money on it. And um, I, give, I, I'm I know you do. No, I'm, I, I'm grateful for it. And you better so, go on his ESG committee now. Yeah. And so he's on there. There. Um, so what it is, it's, um, it's Humble High School uh, graduates. It's uh, There's two elementary schools. My mother happened to be principal of both at one point. Both Title I, I think uh, one's 82% below the poverty line, the other one's 85%. Uh, when those kids, so years ago, uh, they didn't know what college was. So my wife and I rented a bunch of Greyhound buses, put them up on Greyhound, sent them up to A&M and said, here's what college can be. And my mother basically pulled a Michael Scott, Scott Stotts and said, <laughs> if you dream it, I'll get you to college. And so when those fifth graders were coming through who's seniors, we started looking at it. So there's one kid and my wife and I sponsored him for college. He wrote this letter. It was really inspiring. And he, he talked about, um, so he um, was, I remember he was a sophomore in high school. He was uh, working for a lawn crew and he's an 08. And he just kind of realized like, like, this is going to be my lot in life. And he basically, and his grades were crap. And he just basically got mad. He got mad and said, I don't want this to be like his dad worked for lawn crew and said, I'm going to do different. And so literally his grades turned around from C's to A's. So he's graduating high school. And uh, I remember my mother showed me this essay he'd written. I was like, that's a kid I can get behind. And so we did that. I remember sitting down and thinking, you know, I've got a lot of friends in the oil and gas industry and um, I think they might be willing to get behind this. And so we started a charity called Seeds of Hope and it's to sponsor uh, underprivileged kids for college education. And so uh, right now we have 31 kids that are in college that we're paying for. We do a golf tournament. Um, last year we raised almost half a million dollars and we did it. Yeah, I think that was our fourth year. So it's 150, then 300, 400, 500. Before we get up, so Seeds of Hope? Yep. .org? Yes, yes. You like that? Yeah, and so that the whole is planting seeds of hope. And so, you know, the thing about you think about poverty and whatnot, you know, that one kid going to college yeah. is like, and most of these kids, their parents didn't graduate high school. And so, you know, I will tell you, raising the money is the easy part. Trying to corral these kids and saying like, like, well, what's a transcript, right? And yeah. so, you know, they're required to write an essay. They have to get it signed by their parent, by a counselor and a teacher or coach. And if they don't do that, they get rejected. Because my attitude is, if I'm going to ask my friends for money and you can't take the time to get it signed by three, well, that's a bad investment. And so 
like those kids now are graduated, they're working. And so it's, it's been really fun to watch. I think it's awesome. And, uh, you know, there's, there's so much of that stuff that needs to happen. I applaud you for doing that. You were also kind enough uh, and dumb enough to, uh, <laughs> I know where this is going. to be our man of the hour last year at the uh, Youth Development Center Roast and Toast, which in a, in a similar deal, as you know, our good friend Chuck Yates yep. kind of got behind and, and uh, you were kind enough to, uh, gosh, take the, take that uh, interesting uh, beating. beating. Yeah. It was, it was, it was tough on some of your colleagues too. Uh, yeah. You know, Mr. Christopher, I don't know if he's recovered yet from, uh, from some of the comments, but. Uh, it just makes me smile. <laughs> but uh, with all that being said, uh, really appreciate you being here. We, we like to generally end our conversations with uh, a little bit of advice, if you would be so kind to share it, that you feel would be important for our listeners to to hear uh, advice that maybe you wish you'd had 10, 20 years ago, or just good advice today that you could share with our, our listening audience as a, as a successful uh, leader and entrepreneur and, and pillar of the community. Yeah, I would say, you know, especially with so much technology and news, that is instantaneously between Twitter, Instagram, Dave, I know you're big in TikTok, those kind of things. And so <laughs> um, it's easy just to be looking one day ahead or today. And so, you know, when I think about like just my career or the industry or starting the company or just in general, I really wish I would have said, okay, yeah, that's great today, but what is a year out, three years, five years? And, and I think publicly traded companies don't have the ability to do this. They have to think about, I got to live to save the next quarter. And if you imagine if you had the ability to say, I don't have to worry about my shareholders. I'm going to do what's right. Cause I, for five years from now, man, what a difference that would make. And so that's what I would tell the oil and gas industry. It's like, look, this is bad, but it probably had to happen. And this will make it for a stronger, better industry. And again, think of, you know, look, clearly you have to do what you, you know, you got to, you got to stay in the game, right? That's critical. I'm not you know, do what you can to stay in the game. But, you know, if you have to make those tough choices, let someone go, you know, if you're in a year from now or three or five years, you can hire them back. Maybe they're better. Maybe you have to pay them more money. And so again, stay in the game and say, okay, where do I, and, and like write that out. That's one of the things that I do now. And I wish I would have done a long time ago is where do I want the business or where do I want my career to be a year from now, three years, five years now. And uh, I know it sounds kind of dorky and whatnot, but I, I didn't realize how much goal setting I've always done. And I'm not going to sit every morning and write this crap out. But again, no, it's, it's just it's easy to sit there and go minus 37. Okay. You know, like, you know, where do I want the business to go a year from now, three and five years? And then at the same time, don't say, well, I want to do this because I need oil at 80. So, okay, here's where, what can I do like to change? Right. I mean, this, this business is constantly evolving and changing. And, you know, if George Mitchell would have never thought about fracking, we wouldn't even be here. So just like, you know, challenge the norm and don't be afraid to be disruptive. And and the other thing I'd say too, is like, when you're disruptive, get a lot of hate. You just got to know that. Um, and, it, and it sucks. So you got to surround yourself with a bunch of really smart people that you trust, they trust you, and they're willing to challenge you too. Yeah, no, that's that's good advice. It is. I agree with it. Don't try to please everybody. Yeah, you lived it. I yeah, understand yeah. it. Well, listen. So I want to give you, uh, you and your companies, a couple of plugs here. That way, everybody knows how to 
research you and, sure. and get a hold if necessary. Uh, Arm Energy. What's what is your website there? Uh, armenergy.com. So armenergy.com. Yep. Okay. And one more time, I'm going to do Seeds of Hope. Dot org. Yes. That's a great charity. I hope. Yeah. And, and there's a link on the arm website. It walks through the whole charity and whatnot. And, you know, I would tell you that I always we, give money. I don't play golf, but I'll, I'll get Josh to come play. Yeah, golf. we do our golf tournaments in September. Um, it's out where the, uh, it used to be called the shell open or the Houston open. Yeah. It's a great event. Um, ton of people come 25 handicaps are welcome. That's right. Yeah. Okay, I mean, good. it's, it's a really well done event. And, <laughs> and I would say that one of the things I'm most proud of, we, we get a lot of donation. We average 88%, 88 cents of every dollar goes to directly to the scholarship. So no, like we raised half a million. We threw 300 grand was on an awesome gala. I mean, yeah. this is this really, I try to pour it directly to the kids. Well, your mother's a teacher, an educator. Yeah. Mine was too. My mom was, my mom was an English teacher. Okay. So words really mattered growing. Education is, is the key. And it really is the key, whether it's to these children or any child out there. And that's one of the things that, that I moved to Houston the month that Enron collapsed. Wow. I'd never heard of Enron. I didn't know what it was. I'd just gotten out of school and I had a, you know, I, so I moved to Houston. Here comes Enron collapse. And it just, I'd never seen a city so personally hurt yeah. by what happened. And it did. It took a minute for the city to kind of, you know, take a punch and, and catch itself. This is, a, and one of my favorite things over that time that I noticed was how giving a city Houston is. For sure. It's it's the most giving city I've ever been in. I'm from Dallas, and Dallas is a fine city as well, but it, it doesn't have the same kind of... Um, it's north of Houston. It's just just north of <laughs> north of the woodlands. So, you know, that's one of the things that I hope doesn't go away is the ability for Houston to be a giving city for, for the people in need. I mean, look, the city will adapt. It always does. Yeah. You know, I again... I can remember during those, and those 01, 02, those were dark days. Yes. Because you had Enron, you had 9-11. I mean, just, it was just a scary time. And like I said, this time reminds me very similar to that. Well, and you had the, the bubble, the dot-com bubble That's that right. just happened right before That's that right. as well. And so, um, you know, they will adapt. I think, again, like I said, people are going to have to take their breath and, and like figure it out. Um, you you put together three and a half million of smart, aggressive, entrepreneurial people yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the city does. Anytime you end a podcast with a Mike Tyson quote, you know you're in a good spot. But Tyson had one of the best lines of all time. He's everybody's got a game plan until you get hit in the face. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> I love that. I mean, it's yeah. you know, he also said he's gonna eat people into Bolivian, but the the take up have a game plan to get hit in the face is just it's true. You're gonna get hit through life and just be able to, That's right. to figure something out. Well the other the other you know, one I like the, No, we can the, talk the, Mike Tyson all day long. <laughs> The other one I like is uh, success looks a lot like failure. And uh, I think that's so true in, in so many things that uh, most people that have, are successful make a lot of mistakes. They learn from them along sure. the way. And um, people will face challenges. And this is just another challenge, and, and we'll overcome it. We're in the greatest state in the union and the greatest country in the world. So, well, I, you know, I, fact. One of the things fact. that you guys look, you guys are entrepreneur and putting things together. One thing you should think about too is trying to bring together like, you know, like Abbott had his like think tank group to reopen the economy. I thought it was smart that he got Fertitta. Like I know Fertitta's gotten a lot of shit for furlough, but like the guy's trying to survive. You should think about bringing in OFS, private equity, RBL bankers, iBankers, midstream, upstream, downstream traders. And it's like bring think, you know, minds together and say, hey, how's your business changing? Because like one of the things that, you know, I always find when I'm around other business owners, you know, all business owners, you know, regardless of size, how well they do, they worry about cash flow and they have personnel problems. That is all there is to it. 
And so you get so much hearing about how they tackle a problem, the way they see something. And it's just something you should think about kind of like a round table. Yeah. Well, it is we, the oil field 360. That's, that's right. That is our goal is to, you know, bring in all yeah. views of the oil field. If you would come to my seeds events, the senior <laughs> energy executive discussion series, you would understand that we're already trying to do some of that. But, <laughs> but it's anyways, trying, trying. It, know, it, it is. this is big time over here, by the oh, way, I got, people, I got to help you understand. We are talking about <laughs> Zach Lee. Zach Lee has given us almost an hour of his time today. He's looking at his watch. He's got a jet. He's got bigger <laughs> and oh, better gosh. things to do. Zach, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks, guys. It was great a lot of friend. Fun. It was great having a conversation with you. Really good insight. Wish you all the best. It means a lot to you being here. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back on again soon. Perfect. A lot of fun, guys. I yeah. appreciate it. If yeah. this doesn't destroy his yeah. career. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Thank you guys very much. Uh, subscribe to uh, Oilfield 360 on your favorite podcast platform. Look for us on LinkedIn and all the social media channels. If you have any questions, you can look us up at www.oilfield360.com. And you can uh, find myself or David at David or Josh at oilfield360.com. Once again, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Good luck to you. Thanks, guys. Yes. This episode of the Oilfield 360 podcast was brought to you by the following companies. EIV Capital, a growth equity-focused private equity firm, which has been providing capital to the North American energy industry since 2009. The team has extensive experience across the entire energy value chain. We invite you to visit EIVCapital.com and learn how we partner with entrepreneurs to build businesses. Merit Advisors, crafting holistic tax solutions to improve your cash flow and add profit back to your bottom line. When it comes to state and local taxes, Merit is the expert in the oil and gas industry. Visit MeritAdvisor.com. World Oil, for more than 103 years, World Oil has provided global decision makers with coverage of the latest market intelligence and technological advances relating to the upstream oil and gas industry. To subscribe and learn more about these essential resources, please visit worldoil.com slash subscribe. Thank you to our sponsors, Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler, SimmonsPSC.com, Lockton Global Energy and Marine, Lockton.com, Tomahawk Safety, TomahawkSafety.com, Prang & Associates, Prang.com, Daniel Energy Partners, DanielEP.com, EIV Capital, EIVCapital.com, Galtway Marketing, GaltwayMarketing.com, Range Valuation Services, RangeValuationServices.com, Merit Advisors, MeritAdvisor.com, World Oil, WorldOil.com, Fletcha Azul Tequila, FletchaAzulTequila.com. For more information on today's guest and to learn more about our sponsors, please follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, or at oilfield360.com. Piper Sandler Companies, NYSE PIPR, is a leading investment bank and institutional securities firm driven to help clients realize the power of partnership. Securities brokerage and investment banking services are offered in the U.S. through Piper Sandler & Company, member SIPC and FINRA, and Europe through Piper Sandler Limited, authorized and regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission. Asset management products and services are offered through four separate investment advisory affiliates, U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC-registered Piper Sandler Investment Management, LLC, PJC Capital Partners, LLC, and Piper 
Sandler and Company and Guernsey-based Parallel General Partners Limited, authorized and regulated by the Guernsey Financial Services Commission. Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler, are the energy specialists of Piper Sandler.